Hi there, and welcome to another Oslo podcast. My name is Todd Fraser. This podcast comes to you from the 2022 Lives Conference in Paris. Statistics from around the world suggest that the average age and comorbid disease burden of ICU patients is increasing. Additionally, a significant proportion of the healthcare budget globally is spent in the last year of a patient's life. This has led to the concern that some patients are receiving excessive levels of care. Joining me today to discuss this very important ICU issue is Dr. Dominique Benoit. Dominique, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for the invitation, Todd. Dominic, you spoke at the recent conference in Paris about the issue of excessive care, and I'm curious to know what your perspective on this is. How do you define that? Mm-hmm. Well, first, I think we should better um, change a little bit of terminology because um, we, we are often talking about excessive care, but in fact, as you know, we can never give too much care uh, to our patients. So we should better um, speak about excessive treatment. And excessive treatment is about a treatment that is not longer proportional to the expected outcome of the patient. So it's it, it's not about having only a poor outcome. It's the way and the resources and the energy that you put in order to try to change that and to so-called to save the patient. We often, or at least I feel that we often can identify it when we see it, but we seem to have trouble being... Uh, very clear about it in in terms of identifying it. Um, is there any sort of broad definition that you can use that helps you to to define when somebody is receiving excessive treatment? Do you think? No, I, I don't think so. Um, I think this is the reason why we should do it in team. It's looking to the patients from different perspectives. Uh, and as you know, we are trained as physicians to look to the, I would say, objective prognostic criteria. Uh, but for instance, nurses are more trained to, to look to, for instance, the suffering of patients. That's clear cut to pain, to to the story of the patients. And, and, and at that point, we are complementary. Moreover, then in the past 20 years, um, as you know, um, well, the technical innovation makes today that the patient does not longer die in a natural way. It's uh, the patient die when when teams um, uh, teams decide to withdraw or to withhold the care together with the relatives and with the patients. So, twenty years ago, while while, while patients died naturally, um, we evolved now to patients that not, no longer die naturally. Um, and that's the reason also why we have to look to the patient from many different perspectives. And in fact, as a physician, we should facilitate such discussions. There seems to be an increasing trend towards this as an issue. I think if you've been in the industry for a couple of decades, like you and I have, we tend to see this as an increasing issue. Why do you think that might be? It's because of the, the underlying uncertainty. Um, again, we, we, we have the technical innovation, so we can, we can keep patients alive nearly as long as we want. Nearly as long as we want. Um, uh, we can even today start ECMO. And during the COVID, the COVID pandemic, we started ECMO for three months. So n- nobody expected that before the pandemic. So we have, we have a lot of possibilities today. Uh, but this means too that uh, the uncertainty 
uh, is also increasing when and whether to withdraw therapy. Um, again, 20 years ago, we didn't we didn't have such such uncertainty because people die simply a couple of days later. Uh, while now we have to take the decision by ourselves, together, of course, with with the input of the patients and the and the relatives. But we have more more responsibility than 20 years ago, I think. What is it that makes us feel as clinicians so uncomfortable about addressing this issue? Well, as you know, um, uncertainty is is in fact about fear. It's a fear of uh, harming the patient, of course, but it's also fear of how peers are looking to us or how relatives are looking to us. Um, many patients and, and families have have well, many many of them have high expectations. Um, things that we will not be able to accomplish. Um, and this, this, this creates a tension, of course, uh, internal tension uh, with, with a lot of fear and, and uncertainty in many of us. Um, the point, of course, is that we have to acknowledge this for ourselves first. Otherwise, you are simply working our shifts and working for a couple of hours and going from one patient to the other and uh, do, do, do not feel, I would say, that psychological dynamic. But it's about fear. Do you think it's possible to overcome that fear? Like, are there things that we can do within our mm -hmm. own industry to um, help clinicians to be better able to deal with those sorts of discussions and decisions? Well, I would say uh, this, and in fact, it's 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 about leadership. Huh? Um, it's about uh, evolving from, I would say, the pure intelligence, uh, the, the the the, and going through the emotional intelligence. So the the, the being self-reflective, knowing what is happening and which circumstances, uh, and of course, talking about in the team uh, and with peers, and and I think this will be possible then to go to more spontaneity. But I think we should not stay alone with it. We should we should discuss it with our uh, with our colleagues. Um, I always say we we are all the same, but are doing like this is not true. I wonder whether the um, there is a fear amongst clinicians about the way that they appear um, to their colleagues uh, in having difficulty in having these conversations, it leaves them quite vulnerable, I think, and very exposed to, to criticism potentially. Mm -hmm. And in an industry where we expect so much of ourselves, um, often we're very high-functioning people, uh, rarely mm -hmm. fail at anything that we do, and then to find ourselves suddenly exposed to that failure or perceived failure, it can be very threatening, I would yeah. imagine. As I would say, we should redefine failure. Then uh, no. we we are not perfect. Uh, nobody is perfect, and it's in fact uh, yes, having some um, humility, um, and it concerns also the professional integrity. It's about uh, being integer, is uh, being able to speak up, being able to share your values, be able to share your fears, and it's this makes us all stronger. Um, so, so this is the only way which will potentially solve the issue of excessive treatment in the ICU. It will take, of course, a couple of 
years. It's a cultural change. So it takes years to change something like this. Where where do you start? Like if we're going to make a meaningful difference around this issue, where would you start? Uh, with yourself, acknowledging. Uh, this is what I did 10 years ago. I uh, started then to do studies and, uh, and looking to perceptions from the clinical uh, point of view. Um, and, and, and then uh, four years ago, I, I started here in the hospital, um, talk with the CEO, talk with, uh, with uh, uh, the people who, who are, um, uh, well, who, who has to maintain the quality in the hospital. Um, and we decided um, to coach doctors here in the hospital um, in self-reflective uh, to, to really know what is happening in difficult circumstances and also coach them in motivating other people to speak up. So now we, we just finished the study. We, we coached 50 physicians during one year for an average of uh, six uh, sessions of one hour. So we will see whether it changed something, but at least I know from the physicians that they are pretty happy that something like this uh, could be implemented in our hospital. What's the perspective of the patient and their family on this, Dominic? Do they perceive that there is an issue or um, are they unaware of the, the potential for excessive treatment to occur? Well, I, I think the 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 entire society um, at each level, society, hospital, physicians, and patients, I think, are uh, mainly unaware of that issue. Again, it's about uh, expectations and what we can do to these expectations. Um, and there again, it's 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 very um, important then to open up and to 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 improve over communication. Um, and this has been done already in a couple of studies. For instance, one in, uh, published in the New England a couple of years ago from Pittsburgh, showing that simply having a, a communicator facilitator improved end of life decision making without increasing the mortality at three months. So it, it, it clearly shows that we, we simply need a little push in the back simply having a facilitator um, that can already um, improve end-of-life decision-making. We always say that uh, that communication is the soft skill. No, I'm very sorry, it's the hard skill. It's about um, communication, it's about relationships between people. And this is the most, I think, the most difficult thing to, to achieve. Much more difficult than any technical achievement. I think a lot of um, intensive care clinicians feel that there is a, almost a pressure to admit and to treat that comes from a combination of the, the patient themselves, from their treating clinicians, from the family, mm -hmm. and feel that, that there is the potential for excessive treatment to be given. How do you, in your own practice, deal with that, um, that pressure or perceived pressure? Um, <laughs> in my own press practice, well, I'm, I'm trained to remain calm. And but timing myself, I say calming my own emotions at that moment. Uh, keep calm. <laughs> um, 
and try to be as integral as possible um, without fear of giving um, the information that is really required to have an appropriate ethical decision making. So again, it's 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 a lot of fear there. It's it's often not felt like that, but it's about it's about fear. I suspect it's also about the long game, isn't it? It's not necessarily about the one patient in isolation as much as building relationships with um, with your colleagues who are on the wards, with the surgeons, with the physicians, and being able to have meaningful, self-reflective discussions about patients and how you will work together going forwards. Would that be fair? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, that's why I think we, we should start in our team um, because, of course, we're often looking to, for instance, the surgeons or uh, internal medicine, um, but we should first look to our own team and being sure that there we have, uh, this, the, the, I would say, not the same values, but with, that we can share values and at least having the same norm in, in your ICU. And that everybody knows 24, 24 hours, um, seven, what they have to do and which circumstances. So is it as simple then as working collaboratively on objective admission criteria? Or is it too difficult to define what, um, what, will re you know, what qualifies for admission to an ICU unit, for example? Mm -hmm. No, it's more difficult than simply objective criteria. Um, I think, of course, that we need objective criteria. At least at that moment, we speak the, the same language. But I would say the objective criteria will explain maybe 60 or 70% of the variability, but there remains 30 or 40% which uh, can only be subjectively assessed. It's about the story of the patient. It's about the values. It's about the narrative. It's about what is important in his life. So this, this is, of course, the latter is, is very difficult to measure. And this is what we have to do. And this is pure, again, human relationship. It's about feeling and synchronizing with the other what is important for him or her. I guess the other component to that is advanced care planning, which often comes up in this context where there's a sensation that um, perhaps if more groundwork had been done on discussing the patient's wishes prior to getting to the point of critical illness that and um that a better decision could potentially have been made where do you mm -hmm. see advanced healthcare directives in this this issue well i agree of course that advanced care planning is very important uh but that's why a couple of years ago we started first with our team because of course if there is a variability and how um, the wards receive feedback about advanced care planning uh, variability due to to our own team, then you should first work on that. Is that uh, every physician working in your own ICU, uh, for instance, speak up at the moment, he has to speak up, gives feedback to that ward. And this is a very important issue. But um, that's why... It's, it's, it's again, the, the, the study that we have performed here and the intervention that we have performed here, it's about 10 wards here and the hospital together with the medical ICU, because we knew, of course, that we should improve on all that levels. Um, only improving in the ICU will not work. Will work a little bit, of course, because you will, I would say, increase the 
pressure, um, but it will be not enough. Uh, certainly on the weekend, not on the weekend, and not during um, the, the the night shifts. We, as we said a little bit earlier, it's a little bit difficult to uh, categorically define when excessive treatment is occurring. It's it's a difficult definition. If that's the case, how do we measure it in the sense that how do we know that we've got a problem? How do we know whether that problem is getting better or worse? And how do we know when the things that we try to do about it are actually making a difference? Well, I would say I agree with you that um, at the individual level, it's very difficult to claim that somebody is receiving excessive treatments unless the patient is awake and you can discuss with him. Then again, subjectively, you can assess it. Uh, but it is, uh, it is from a statistical point of view or scientific point of view, nearly impossible to do it at the individual level. However, you can do it, of course, an average on the population level. Um, you can do it by, by measuring, uh, for instance, the ethical climate in your ICU, where you can ask two clinicians simply to say, oh, you are working together at end of life. Um, and then looking, for instance, also at the patient's outcomes, whether they differ. But I would say what you should focus on scientifically is, um, I think the issue starts of existing treatment once a team or one individual is systematically acting in the same way, regardless of the underlying comorbidities, age, and so on. So there is a systematically similar behavior. So there is a lack of variability um, that normally you should expect, of course, when an individual have a different perspe perspective. So you, you can measure the, 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 the point, the, the systematic behavior in a team via ethical decision-making climate questionnaire, for instance, uh, or via benchmarking uh, patients' outcomes. A nice study in the JAMA in 2016, where they benchmarked um, patients uh, above the 80 years old who, um, uh, who died because of cancer. And they benchmarked at the country level, the Netherlands, Belgium, Germany, Canada, and the US. And for instance, um, in Belgium, 15% of the patients who um, who died were admitted in the ICU treatments in the last three months of life. This is the double than in the Netherlands and the double than in Germany. So in Germany, they were at 8%, in the Netherlands also at 8%. Um, in Germany, they have more ICU beds than in Belgium. So it's not about beds. It's about really how we use these beds. So there I can firmly uh, claim that indeed in Belgium, we, we, we are doing more existive treatment above 80 years old than in Germany. The more than most of the patients here too in Belgium want to die at home. So 50% die in the hospital. If, do you have a sense of how big the problem is? I, I understand what you just said there suggests that there is um, excessive care in that particular segment. Um, in Belgium, for example, do you, is there a consensus or a global view of how big a problem we might be talking about? 
Well, well, uh, we we performed this Propricus study in 2014, so this uh, involves 68 ICUs. Um, 1,800 patients who were admitted uh, during one month uh, in the ICU. And there we asked two clinicians on a daily basis to identify patients who, according to them, received excessive treatment. Uh, what we saw is when patients were identified by two clinicians, the probability that they were still alive with a good quality of life at one year was 7%. This represented 12% of the patient population in the ICU. Um, there is another study by Huwa in the Blue Journal um, 10 years ago about who looked more than not to clinicians' impressions, but to objective palliative care triggers. And they had, again, this similar estimation, about 12 to 15% of the population admitted in the ICU is in fact uh, potentially receiving excessive treatment. So it's about one in five to one in 10 beds. One of the challenges, Dominic, that I still struggle with even after a couple of decades in working in ICUs is the concept of the rights of the individual versus the rights of the society um, in the sense that you may have a feeling that a large amount of resources is being committed to an unlikely survival of a patient to one particular patient, but there is a firm commitment from the patient and their treating team to give it a go. Mm -hmm. Where, how, how do we build this into our ethical framework in decision-making, the rights of the individual versus the rights of, of a society? Yeah, that's a good one. Um... I think in the last um, 100 years, we evolved much more to the rights of the individual, um, which is, of course, very important. And I'm, of course, completely in favor of autonomy. Um, but the issue there is that um, this brings us, in fact, a little bit back, I would say, um, the statistical number to treat. Um, so your question is whether, whether, in fact, an individual um, can ask and can receive what he wants versus what it costs for the society. Um, it's in fact um, the intention needed, the the number needed to treat in statistics. Um, and in fact, um, we, we should ask ourselves what is our intention or number needed to treat. When we are looking to the pharmaceutical industry. As physicians, we find that the number needed to treat is very important because if the number needed to treat is much too high, then we should, of course, not give it or should not be reimbursed. Um, I would like to see our number needed to treat, our own number needed to treat. Um, for instance, uh, we, we, we did a study a couple of years ago on um, appropriateness of CPR. Um, and we saw that uh, and it's well known also in the literature, um, a, a patient um, above the 80 years old um, in asystole, um, well, the number needed to treat there to survive, not to survive with a good neurological outcome, but to survive is one in 247. This is the number needed to treat. So the question there, should we go on? Um, the point there is, 
that I think that, again, teams should take the responsibility once they have such a patient. So, of course, I do not say that you should not resuscitate patients above the 80. But I say that you, we should not do it systematically. And that, of course, maybe the guideline should be, well, um, assess according to what you find at home in the circumstances with your team what you should do. And of course, that sometimes you should do it. Um, but systematically, no. In fact, in fact, we are a little bit going back now, I would say, to the Middle Ages. Um, you, you know, in the Middle Ages, we expected, we had, we had behaviors that we thought um, were effective. Um, but in fact, with science, um, then science emerged and science really measured indeed the effect of our behavior. Now, this has, of course, the consequences that once we measure our effect, we, have, we are accountable for that effect. This is, this is why, why it's difficult to deal with it. Um, but so if... Um, no, you see with, with the CPR about 80 years, we can measure that effect. And nevertheless, we continue to do it. So we go back to a ritual. We go back to the ages where you do an action with a very, very, very low um, probability of, of doing, of, 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 that it is in the benefit of the patient. So, so indeed, it's it's. I think you you complete. I completely agree with you, Todd. That it's about individual versus societal point of view, and I think we should put a little bit more weight now again on the societal point of view. To that end, do you feel that there's a weight on you personally, but also on us as intensivists, um, to be responsible for equitable distri uh, distribution of that resource? Do you think it's fair that a certain craft group be responsible for that, either by design or by accident? Well, I would say we are responsible for the fact that we should acknowledge that and that we should go to the politicians to say that what we are doing today is potentially not longer beneficial for the patients and the, the relatives. We are responsible for that. It's both communication. For instance, now I, I, I had to talk on, an, uh, on a meeting uh, in Brussels um, for emergency physicians, and um, I give them the, the example of the, of the CPR abode of 80 years old, and they say, yes, but how can you handle that? How can we change things? Well, the first thing I, I said, you, you have to look to your numbers with humility. And then you need courage. Courage to acknowledge for yourself that these numbers are not good, and courage to go to the politicians uh, with these numbers. And then maybe, yes, courage then to say, okay, let's do, um, let's go on television and saying that maybe uh, we should go in another direction and that it is important for a patient and for his relatives to, to do an advanced care planning, for instance. It would be a nice intervention. Dominic, what do you think the consequences of inaction on this issue would be? Well, um, the consequence is that uh, is that I'm I'm pretty sure that we increase the suffering uh, of patients. Uh, this is clearly an issue when you discuss this with uh, nurses. 
the, the, the tension with nurses is always the same. It's about, it's about the suffering of the patient. Uh, it increases the burden, uh, certainly, and, 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 and relatives too, providing excessive care. They, have, uh, they perceive the, the quality of care as uh, less, less good than in other circumstances. But uh, as you know, um, it's, it's, it's give a difficult uh, griefing process, mourning process. It can uh, increase depression, uh, PTSD. Um, at the clinician level, similar. I think uh, this is, I think, one of the most important issues that is um, not addressed well is the moral, the subtle moral distress to which we are confronted on a daily basis. And I think this is a major issue uh, also if we want to reduce burnout uh, and intend to job leave. Um, and this property custody, um, we found that, for instance, um, interdisciplinary respect, so speaking up, being able to speaking up, to reflect about the quality of care and taking decisions at end of life, these were three independent variables associated with the lower intent to job leave after adjustment for all possible factors, also at country level. Um, and then, of course, it have also uh, a price for and a cost for the society, yes. Given the magnitude of what you just talked about, um, it makes sense to do something about it. One of the challenges will be identifying patients for whom this could be potentially become an issue. How do you suggest that people approach that issue? Well, uh, you, you could start from uh, the objective criteria, those that were um, used by Hua and the Blue Journal a couple of years ago, uh, where you have a number of objective palliative care triggers. There you will already identify 12 to 15% of the patient population um, that potentially receive excessive treatment. So this is, this is a starting point. This is not. This is not because you. The, the patient has, of course, these factors that you should directly withdraw care. That is not not the case. It's. It can start as a trigger to start the discussion in the team. Um, and 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 again, very important then at that moment to discuss it in the team because then you will also use the subjectivity, the the, the values, the emotion, the narrative of the patient and the families, um, in the team discussion. I think that this is the only way how we can go for it. One of the big challenges, I think, for people is, as you mentioned a bit earlier, the uncertainty and the discomfort that we have with that uncertainty. And I think we tend to revert back to conservatism when we're mm -hmm. confronted with that. Um, is there any way of making people more comfortable with that uncertainty in any individual patient? Yes, um, but but there we go. We go. I think to the techniques that psychologists use, and we are of course not trained like psychologists. But um, they they normalize the situation. They simply say that's normal to 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 having fear at that moment. They simply say that it's normal to have these emotions at that moment. Uh, they give time, they ask open questions rather than closed questions, as such that self-reflection is stimulated. Um, 
And like we see in our daily communication with relatives, if you are using the tools that most of the time, 20 minutes or 30 minutes later, um, you, 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 you can close a meeting with, I would say, um, feeling that you said what you had to say and, 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 and with the satisfaction um, and, and the relatives are also satisfied. So I think this, this is the way to do it. But of course, we need training in that. To that end, Dominic, for those people who are listening to this and it's resonating with them and they're feeling, yes, there is an issue and I need to do something, what would you suggest as their first steps? Well, it, I would say it's, it starts with yourself, with acknowledging your own values, what is really important, because it's, it's indeed at the surface, it seems something as important in communication, important in advanced life um, planning, it's uh, important about objective criteria. No, I think it's much, much deeper. It's about values. What do you stand for? What is important for you? How do you share that together with your colleagues? And if you can share this together with your colleagues, then you, you, you can have the values of the team, the, the norm of the team, and then you, sh you can go for it. So it's not about simply communications training. It's about the deeper drives to change something and to communicate. It's a fantastic way to sum up. Dominic Benoit, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on this very, very important issue that's going to challenge intensive care for years to come. Okay, thank you, Todd. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. All of OSLA's content and features are completely free. Get access to all our great podcast interviews, as well as hundreds of modules, journal reviews, quizzes and articles by downloading our free app. You'll also be able to access our logbook, and any OSLA learning you do is automatically recorded in your CPD diary. Search for My OSLA wherever you get your apps or visit our website at oslacommunity.com.